0: Welcome to the Grenzone, dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb.
1: All right, welcome back. Another day, another reaction pattern to kick off. If you're listening to the podcast in order, we just finished our journey through the papulosquamous disorders and its various subtypes including psoriasiform, pitoriasiform, lichenoid, annular, and erythrodermic conditions. Today we are going to start the first of three episodes on our second reaction pattern, the eczematous dermatoses. The term eczema is nonspecific and can be used to describe rashes that are red and itchy. There may be some scale present in eczematous disorders but is usually much more subtle than the scale seen in the papulosquamous disorders that we just discussed. Many of these eczematous rashes are quite common and often misdiagnosed, so we have to be the experts at recognizing them and treating them aggressively to give patients the relief that they're looking for. Before we do an overview of the eczematous conditions and discuss contact dermatitis in detail, I'll mention our disclaimer.
0: This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.
1: Nor does this episode
0: represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates.
1: When it comes to eczematous disorders, we classify them into three groups, acute, subacute, and chronic. Acute eczematous reactions such as allergic or irritant contact dermatitis typically occur within hours or days and present as very inflamed lesions that weep fluid and can have vesicles and bolla. Think of poison ivy as acute eczema.
0: Welcome to the world of sensitive skin and eczematous dermatoses, a cornerstone of humanity, and the very reason my underwear drawer is limited to dye-free 100% cotton whitey tighties. What is a unique feature of subacute eczema that is not typically present in acute eczema?
1: Subacute eczema occurs after those acute lesions crust over and will start to display scale. Now remember, scaling on rashes and lesions takes time to develop and isn't seen with acute reactions. An example of subacute eczema might be stasis dermatitis. Then there's chronic eczematous conditions such as atopic dermatitis that typically last many months to several years. The chronic eczematous changes are also scaly, but a more characteristic finding is the lichenification that occurs from chronic scratching. Lichenification means that the skin is thickened and that the normal skin lines are much more accentuated. Look up pictures of chronic atopic dermatitis on the antecubital fossa to get a better idea of what I'm describing. So. Although we will be categorizing the various eczematous conditions into acute, subacute, and chronic, keep in mind that all of the eczematous disorders that we'll discuss, such as contact dermatitis or atopic dermatitis, can occur in an acute, subacute, or chronic fashion. But since they usually have a predictable clinical course, we'll lump them into these categories for the sake of organizing the podcast episodes. Today we'll be discussing acute eczematous reactions caused by contact dermatitis. In the upcoming eczematous episodes, we will discuss subacute causes such as stasis dermatitis and more chronic eczematous reactions including atopic dermatitis and atopic eczema. Alright, let's talk contact dermatitis. The most basic way to look at contact derm is that a foreign material or chemical contacts the skin and causes it to become inflamed.
0: And what are the two forms of contact dermatitis? How are they different? And which one would explain the reason my buttocks does not agree with blue undergarments?
1: We divide contact dermatitis into two forms, irritant contact dermatitis and allergic contact dermatitis. Irritant contact derm is more common and makes up 80% of contact dermatitis cases. It is caused by some irritating material or chemical that directly damages the skin without involving the immune system. It occurs in virtually everyone who comes into contact with enough of the irritating substance. A common scenario for irritant contact dermatitis is excessive hand washing. Let's say everyone listening to this podcast is a big germaphobe and decides to wash their hands with soap and water 40 times a day and not use moisturizers. Pretty much everyone would get an irritant contact dermatitis of their hands due to physically damaging their skin barrier leading to dry, irritated skin. So again, irritant contact dermatitis is equal opportunity and can affect anyone. There is no memory to the immune response and it can occur within hours of contact because it does not need to recruit or create any memory inflammatory cells. Allergic contact dermatitis is different in that it is mediated by the immune system and caused by a type 4 delayed hypersensitivity. Unlike the equal opportunity irritant contact dermatitis, allergic contact dermatitis affects a small percentage of people exposed to the allergen. When this allergen contacts the skin for the first time, it is processed by our antigen presenting cells leading to activation of CD8 T cells in a process called sensitization. When the patient is re-exposed to that allergen, these T-cells are raring to go and recognize the allergen, release a bunch of cytokines, recruit other inflammatory cells, and cause the inflammatory reaction that we see is allergic contact dermatitis. Allergic contact derm occurs within a day or two of re-exposure to that antigen. Let's give another weird example. If we're all still germophobes but decide to rub triple antibiotic ointment on our hands daily for a couple of months, maybe 10-20% to 20% of us would develop an allergic contact dermatitis on our hands.
0: Okay, let's say you're skating around at Skate Station with your hipster girlfriend one Friday night. You attempt some stunt to impress her, rendering your knees without an epidermis. You go to the store and buy the first thing you see that has the word antibiotic on the label because you're an imbecile. You end up with a rash. You go to the emergency department. You are diagnosed with Stevens-Johnson syndrome. You are airlifted to Mass Gen, You then receive IVIG and spend a week in the hospital for allergic contact dermatitis. So, what are the ingredients in the triple antibiotic ointment and which ones commonly cause allergic contact dermatitis?
1: Remember BNP, Bacitracin, Neomycin, and Polymyxin B. The bacitracin and neomycin components are common causes of allergic contact dermatitis, while the polymyxin B is a much less common cause, but never say never. So let's sum up these differences between irritant and allergic contact dermatitis again. Remember that irritant contact dermatitis is non-immune mediated, physically damages the skin, and occurs in everyone with a large enough exposure. On the contrary, allergic contact dermatitis is an immune-mediated type 4 hypersensitivity that occurs in a minority of people that are exposed, and it requires sensitization to the allergen. Keep in mind that some people are more predisposed to contact dermatitis, such as patients with atopic dermatitis who already have a poor skin barrier that allows penetration of irritants and allergens. Although irritant contact and allergic contact derm have a different pathogenesis, they can look so similar clinically that some dermatologists argue that you cannot distinguish them without patch testing.
0: You shouldn't slap a patch test on every patient with a rash, but sometimes, despite flawless history taking, I find myself in need of it.
1: And remember, both can have the acute, subacute, and chronic eczematous changes that we discussed earlier. When it comes to contact dermatitis, we could dedicate at least five episodes to going over all of the irritant and allergens out there in the world that can cause it. I'm sorry to say that's not going to happen, but I want to lay a foundation so you'll remember the most common and characteristic irritants and allergens. So let's start with the irritants, which disrupt the lipids and proteins that make up our skin barrier. Oftentimes, irritant contact dermatitis is due to repeated exposures to mild irritants, such as repeated exposure to soap and water from excessive hand washing. These patients are classically your hospital workers, nurses, cooks, bartenders, or germophobes that we mentioned earlier. However, don't forget that irritant contact dermatitis can occur after a single exposure to a very strong irritant.
0: And tell me, what is a stronger irritant to the skin? Acids or bases? And no, I'm not referring to the lysergic acid the hoodlums pass around at the lollipop palooza.
1: The answer is that bases are stronger irritants. Bases are bad, bad, bad because they not only denature proteins in our skin, but they also disrupt the barrier lipids in the stratum corneum. Cement is one example of an alkali that can be extremely irritating. Other common alkalis are various detergents, soaps, bleaches, and cleaning products. Acids can also be very irritating to the skin, and a few examples include sulfuric, hydrochloric, and nitric acids used in fertilizers, in addition to hydrofluoric acid, which is incredibly strong and can burn the skin down to the bone.
0: I would rather bathe in hydrofluoric acid than have you spend another minute stinking up my clinic.
1: Some other clinical variants of irritant contact dermatitis worth mentioning include acneiform, sensory, airborne, and plant-derived causes. Acneiform ICD occurs after exposures to metals or metalworking fluids, Sensory ICD is diagnosed when patients report a burning skin sensation to various topical medications without skin changes. Airborne irritant contact dermatitis occurs from dust or fibers, such as fiberglass. And plant-derived irritant contact dermatitis comes from plants. Duh. One that deserves special mention is phytophotodermatitis, which occurs when ferrocumarins in limes, celery, parsley, and a host of other plants contacts the skin and is then activated by light, leading to erythema and edema in unique patterns that heal with hyperpigmentation. This is classically seen in your spring breakers, Stella getting her groove back, or in bartenders serving up margaritas outside in the sun.
0: Hey ladies, how about some margaritas in a tequila shot? Can I take a picture with y'all?
1: Next, let's learn some bread and butter allergic contact dermatitis before Dr. Grumpy Pants wants to play a little game with us.
0: The game is called Name the Culprit. I say an area of the body that looks like contact dermatitis, and you name the culprit allergen that's causing it.
1: So as we spend some time discussing these common allergens, I want you to think about how these patients might present in clinic. The 7 Big Causes of allergic contact dermatitis in no particular order include topical medications, plants, metals, cosmetic products such as fragrance or hair care products, preservatives, adhesives, and rubber products. Again, these main causes of allergic contact dermatitis are topical medications, plants, metals, cosmetic products such as fragrance or hair care products, preservatives, adhesives, and rubber products. So let's hit some very basic highlights of each of these groups. Topical medications can be a very common cause of allergic contact derm. Like we mentioned earlier, the neomycin and bacitracin in triple antibiotic ointments are common culprits. If you listen to the Mycosis Fungoides podcast, you'll remember that topical nitrogen mustard also commonly leads to allergic contact derm. Some others worth mentioning include oxybenzone in sunscreens, ester anesthetics such as procaine, and believe it or not, topical steroids besides the medication itself ingredients in the vehicle for these medications can also cause allergic contact dermatitis these components include lanolin propylene glycol and ethylene diamine again allergens that can present in various cream and ointment vehicles include lanolin propylene glycol and ethylene diamine another allergen worth remembering is propolis spelled p r o p o l i s propolis which is made by bees and used in lip balms Just because it is natural doesn't mean it can't be harmful. This
0: generation's obsession with organic materials is nauseating. Snake venom is 100% natural, and you don't see any loonies selling that at the local farmer's market.
1: And speaking of all-natural ways to get a good rash, urachial oil, spelled U-R-U-S-H-I-O-L, urachial oil in poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac can cause allergic contact derm, which is referred to as roos dermatitis, which is spelled R-H-U-S, roos dermatitis. For boards, you have to remember that poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac are all from the genus Toxicodendron within the Anacardiaceae family spelled A-N-A-C-A-R-D-I-A-C-E-A-E, Anacardiaceae family. And as for the metals causing allergic contact derm...
0: What is the most common ingredient causing positive patch tests, which happens to be a metal?
1: The answer is nickel, which can be seen in earrings, belt buckles, buttons on jeans, etc. Chromates are another metal causing allergic contact derm, which is present in leather, cement, and the green felt that is seen on pool tables. Picture a biker wearing full leather shooting pool in a dive bar with cement floors. That's your perfect storm for a nice chromate allergy.
0: You scratched on the eight ball, kid. Don't you dare scratch my marble jacket.
1: Other metals causing allergic contact dermatitis include cobalt, which is also in cement, along with gold and mercury, both of which lead to lichen planus-like lesions in the mouth. Remember from the Lichen Planus podcast that dental amalgams, which are fillings made of liquid mercury mixed with an alloy of metals like silver, tin, and copper, can also cause oral lichen planus.
0: And what are some cosmetic ingredients that can cause allergic contact dermatitis?
1: These include fragrance mixes, balsam of Peru, and paraphenylenediamine, also known as PPD, which is commonly used in hair dyes and henna for temporary tattoos, amongst other things.
0: Okay, well, if you're ever going to pass your boards, unlikely, you're going to have to know this one. What are some other allergens that cross-react with paraphenylenediamine?
1: For the cross-reactants with PPD, you'll want to remember the acronym PASTA, with P standing for paraben preservatives and para-aminobenzoic acid, aka PABA, which can be found in sunscreens. The A stands for dyes, S for sulfonamides, T for thiazides, and A for anesthetics, which refers to the ester anesthetics such as benzocaine. Again, remember the cross-reactants with diamine, aka PPD, by remembering PASTA which stands for paraben preservatives, PABA in sunscreens, dyes, sulfonamides, thiazides, and ester anesthetics such as benzocaine. Some preservatives that can also cause allergic contact dermatitis include formaldehyde, which is seen in anything from paper to wrinkle-free clothing. Formaldehyde-releasing preservatives such as quaternium-15 may also be present in soaps and shampoos.
0: And what might cause allergic contact dermatitis on a baby's
1: buttocks? The answer is methyl isothiazolinone used in baby wipes. Again, that's methyl isothiazolinone in baby wipes. Next we have adhesives that can cause allergic contact dermatitis, and these include cyanoacrylates and methacrylates, used in artificial nails, along with epoxy resin and PTBP, which stands for P-tert-butylphenol formaldehyde. Lots of big words in this podcast that will make you sound smart, but you're going to have to hear them at least 10 times to make them stick, but that's okay. So lastly, let's touch on the rubber products causing allergic contact dermatitis, for which latex is probably the most well-known.
0: If you have a patient with a latex allergy, what other things should you warn the patient to avoid? In other words, what does latex cross-react with?
1: The review book by Ali Khan and Hawker has a nice mnemonic to remember this with called back passion, which refers to bananas, avocados, chestnuts, kiwi, and passion fruit, which can cross-react in patients with latex allergies. Besides latex, some other rubber additives to look out for include neoprene in wetsuits and mercaptobenzothiazole, which is the most common cause of allergic shoe dermatitis. So before we have some fun with Dr. Grumpy Pants, let's quick sum up these causes of allergic contact dermatitis. So we have the topical medications such as neomycin, bacitracin, steroids, nitrogen mustard, ester anesthetics like benzocaine, and oxybenzone sunscreens. Then we have plants such as the toxicodendrons, poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac. Metals such as nickel, chromates, and cobalt. Cosmetic products such as fragrance mix, balsam of Peru, and diamine hair dye. Preservatives such as formaldehyde. Adhesives such as cyanoacrylates and methacrylates in artificial nails. And rubber products such as the latex in gloves or mercaptobenzothiazole causing shoe dermatitis.
0: All right, it's game time. I say the location or clinical scenario and you give me an allergen or two. Let's start easy. How about the earlobes?
1: How about nickel from earrings? Mm, The neck. And how about fragrances and perfumes such as Balsam of Peru?
0: Okay, the hands.
1: Latex gloves or poison ivy?
0: I'll take it. The arms.
1: How about poison ivy again? The wrist. And if
0: you say poison ivy again like the guy who says turkey three times in a row on Family Feud, you're
1: done. How about nickel in watches or the chromates in the leather on the wristband of the watch? The top of the foot. benzothiazole in rubber, adhesives, or chromates in a leather shoe?
0: Your malodorous armpits.
1: How about fragrance or propylene glycol in deodorants?
0: The lower abdomen and keep your hands off mine.
1: Nickel in belt buckles or rubber in the elastic waistband?
0: The lower legs.
1: How about bacitracin or neomycin allergies to people rubbing triple antibiotic ointment on their stasis dermatitis?
0: Let me guess. I need to worry about the rubber allergies around the waistband for men such as yourself wearing yoga pants. Anyways, how
1: about the lips? And how about propolis and natural chapsticks, or chapsticks that contain sunscreen including oxybenzone, which can be a common contact allergen. Eyelids. This is tricky, but tosilamide in nail polish can cause eyelid dermatitis when patients rub their eyes. Remember that eyelid skin is the thinnest skin on the body and is very sensitive to allergens. Eyelid dermatitis can also be caused by any other allergens on the hands that are rubbed into the eye, along with allergens in mascara or eyeshadow, or even the rubber in sponges that is used to apply the eyeshadow itself.
0: Are you cheating? Because you sound like a parrot reading from a teleprompter. How about the penis?
1: Now, how about latex or rubber accelerators? And I hate to say it, but poison ivy frequently ends up in this area, too.
0: I bet you know all about that. Sticking with the same
1: area, how about the anus? And how about methyl isothiazolinone in wet wipes?
0: Well, you forgot to mention the benzocaine in my hemorrhoid cream. Oh, is that too much information? Wait, wait, let me abbreviate it for you so you understand. Is the benzocaine in my hemorrhoid cream TMI? Deal with it. Okay, a biker wearing leather in a dive bar with cement floors shooting billets. Chromates!
1: All right, now, wasn't that fun? So to round this episode up, I want to quick discuss how we evaluate and diagnose patients with contact dermatitis, and then end with some quick treatments and a summary. So when you're evaluating a patient with a rash and the lesions have linear or unique shapes that look like an outside job, think of irritant or allergic contact dermatitis and ask the right questions. It's important to really get these patients to think about what has been contacting their skin. Ask about new personal care products such as makeups, shampoos, chapsticks, and lotions, Or how about new jewelry, new clothing, new shoes, new laundry detergents, or new treatments they've been trying, such as triple antibiotic ointment? For more chronic cases, a nice trick is to ask if the rash gets better when the patient is on vacation, since time away from exposures at home or at work can allow the rash to improve. When you go through these questions and still can't find a possible cause, that's when we turn to patch testing, so let's quick talk about some basics on how patch testing is done, what it can find, and what the commonly used patch tests can miss. The most commonly used tests are the TRUE test, expanded testing with fin chambers, or the repeat open application test, also called the ROTE test, amongst many more expanded patch tests. Since the TRUE test is one of the more commonly ones used, let's quickly discuss how it is used and what it can show. TRUE tests contain 3 panels with 12 test spots for allergens on each of them, which comes to a total of 35 allergens tested in one spot for a control. Obviously, there are a lot of allergens that the true test can miss, but this is a good place to start. First, you need to pick the ideal patient and have an ideal area of skin to place the patch test on, which is usually the upper back. You don't want to apply patch tests to already inflamed skin, such as bad acne or sunburns, nor should patients have used topical steroids on the site within a week or systemic steroids within one to two weeks. Patients also need to be able to return to the office in two days for patch removal and another two to five days after that for a second reading for delayed reactions. Ideally, we place the patch on a Monday, remove it on a Wednesday, and do a second reading on a Friday or the following Monday. On the first visit, the patches are placed typically on the upper back. If the patient had applied lotion or any product to the skin earlier in the day, this should be wiped off with alcohol. The patches are secured into place with tape, marked with a marker, and the patient is sent home with instructions to come back in 48 hours for patch removal and to avoid heavy activity that can dislodge the patches or cause excessive sweating that causes them to peel away. When they look at you like, What? No showering for two days? But I do all my contemplating in the shower. Tell them to suck it up and get the dry shampoo. In two days, they return to get the patches taken off and they are given their first reading. There are five types of reactions that can be documented, started with a negative for no reaction, plus minus for a doubtful pink reaction, one plus for a weak red reaction, two plus for a vesicular reaction, or three plus for a bolus reaction. Since reactions can be delayed, you bring the patient back for a second reading in another two to five days after you remove the patches. If reactions improve at locations where you documented a reaction, it is likely that it was more of an irritant contact reaction, whereas worsening reactions confirm an allergic reaction to the ingredient at that test site. Patients are then given informational sheets that explain what products the allergen is in and how to avoid them. Patients should also be instructed to return to clinic if they develop a reaction after that second reading, since delayed reactions can be seen, especially with topical steroids. So, besides patch testing, I want to quickly discuss the biopsy findings for contact dermatitis and basic treatments before we sum up the highlights and call it a day.
0: You may have answered some questions correctly. You may even think you've won the battle at this point, but I guarantee you will lose the war. Still, it will be fun seeing how long you can keep your head above water. What will a biopsy of dermatitis show?
1: Biopsy findings will depend on whether you biopsy an acute, subacute, or chronic contact dermatitis, and it also depends on whether it is irritant or allergic contact dermatitis. If you remember one thing, remember that since contact dermatitis is an eczematous rash, the hallmark is going to be spongiosis, which you'll remember is swelling of the epidermis. In acute cases, this swelling can be so abrupt that it forms vesicles and bulla that are obvious on path. In more chronic cases that have been scratched, you will see a thickening of the epidermis that we call acanthosis. When comparing and contrasting the histo for irritant versus allergic contact dermatitis, remember that allergic contact dermatitis is going to have more spongiosis and more inflammation in the dermis compared to what you see in irritant contact dermatitis. A nice hint on path for irritant contact dermatitis is going to be the presence of dead keratinocytes, which appear as red cells that we call dead reds.
0: That was the name of my rock and roll band in residency. We really rocked the house with our hit song, I do it all for the clobetazole. You find that cool, right? Huh? Ah.
1: As far as treating patients with contact dermatitis, it's obvious that we want to avoid the irritants and allergens. Topical steroids are going to be the mainstay. However, other anti-inflammatories like topical calcineurin inhibitors can be helpful on the face and in inner areas. One scenario worth going over quickly is how to treat patients with bad poison ivy reactions. First, they need to wash the urachial oils off their skin as soon as possible to keep them from spreading it. And secondly, they are going to need higher doses of prednisone starting at 1 mg per kg per day up to 60 mg daily, which is then tapered off over at least 3 weeks. Treatments that are too short or not high enough doses, i.e. Medrol dose packs, will cause the rash to flare up once they come off of these lower steroid doses. Okay, my friends, I know that's a lot of stuff and a lot of big words that went in one ear and out the other, but that's okay. The repetition of re-listening to these episodes and summing up the highlights at the end will help, trust me. So let's hit the basic highlights of contact dermatitis real quick.
0: I do it all for the club song. I do it all for the club song. Oh, excuse
1: me. Remember that irritant contact dermatitis is non-immune mediated physically damages the skin, and occurs in everyone with a large enough exposure. Excessive hand washing is one example, and remember that alkalis are typically more damaging than acids. On the contrary, allergic contact dermatitis is an immune-mediated type 4 hypersensitivity that occurs in a minority of people exposed, and it requires sensitization to the allergen. The seven big causes of allergic contact dermatitis are 1. Topical medications such as neomycin, bacitracin, steroids, nitrogen mustard, benzocaine, and oxybenzone sunscreens. Two, plants such as roost dermatitis caused by the urushiol oils in poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac. Three, metals such as nickel, chromates, and cobalt.
0: You think the poison ivy out there is bad? It ain't much better in here,
1: kid. Then we have four, cosmetic products such as Fragrance Mix, Balsam of Peru, and Paraphenylene Diamine Hair Dye, five, preservatives such as formaldehyde, six, adhesives such as cyanoacrylates and methacrylates in artificial nails, and seven, rubber products such as latex and gloves or mercaptobenzothiazole causing shoe dermatitis. Some hints on PATH will be that allergic contact dermatitis is going to have more spongiosis and more inflammation in the dermis compared to what you see with irritant contact dermatitis, whereas a hint for irritant contact dermatitis is going to be some dead red keratinocytes mixed into that spongiosis. Treatment is going to be avoiding the causes, topical steroids for mild reactions, and systemic steroids when patients are really miserable. And that's all we got for contact dermatitis. In the next episode, we will discuss the next two eczematous disorders, stasis dermatitis and atopic eczema.
0: I don't care about your comments, concerns, or grievances, and I'm not in the mood to tell you mine.
1: All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content, and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents, with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com, and that's with two z's, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the GrenZone.
0: This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.